Well, I'm pretty well. Uh, I fell through that hole. Thankfully, I didn't keep falling that way. I got trapped here instead. With this ledge, my arm I can't use. Oh, I can't go that way at all. Believe it or not. The bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibilities. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent and Ryan. So this is our 17th episode that you and I have done, right? The the long form. Amazing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we've had the good fortune of hearing some unbelievable stories straight from the sources, right? We've talked to one of the most well-known exorcists in the United States. We've talked to real life vampires and witches. We've talked to historians, explorers, stunt women, <clears throat> Japanese game show contestants, right? <laughs> That's right. But this week is at least equally as special because this week we're featuring three incredible stories told by people who are lucky and we can safely say thankful to be alive. Today, just in time for Thanksgiving, we're bringing you three people who not only beat the odds to survive, but went on to use their notoriety to help make the world a better place. Why? Because their lives were changed in profound ways and they are genuinely thankful to be alive. Uh, yeah, you're so right. Uh, in each case, uh, it's, it's special in its own way. Uh, but let's start with Dr. John All, uh, director of the Mountain Environments Research Institute, uh, research professor at Western Washington University, and executive director of the American Climber Science Program and the regional chair for the Explorers Club of New York City. Dr. All studies climate change in some of the most dangerous places in the world. In 2014, he was 49 years old, recording uh, melting ice on a remote Himalayan peak in Nepal called Himlung, while his two companions uh, had retreated to their camp because one had gotten sick. Dr. All found himself alone for a moment. He decided to melt some snow for a morning coffee. I was out collecting data one day and walked walking on a nice flat snowfield, and suddenly I uh, went from a sunny morning trying to get some uh, snow to melt for coffee water and uh, some samples uh, to suddenly it was pitch black. I'm bouncing back and forth off the walls of a crevasse. A free call, mm. no dead. Um, but then I got super lucky and instead of falling, you know, hundreds of feet down the crevasse, I got stuck on a block of ice wedged in the middle of the crevasse landed on that little platform, broke 15 bones, including six of my vertebra. So my back was broken, but I, and my arm was ripped out of socket and everything. Um, and that's one of those deals where, again, I've worked in really remote, harsh environments all my career, but I've been on search and rescue. I've had every kind of medical and, um, you know, rescue training you can have. And even as well prepared as I was, even as experienced as I was, I mean, there's always things that could go wrong. The problem was, is like a week before it had snowed two feet. And so that two feet of fresh snow, had just covered everything. 
And we didn't think it made that big a difference at that elevation, but apparently it had. And so it had uh, taken a very small opening into the crevasse and covered it over like a tiger trap. And so it's just one of those things where it's totally unpredictable um, and no real way to kind of plan around it. And um, again, it's just a function of climate change. Glaciers, as they shrink in thickness, um, the cracks become more evident. And so there's more and more cracks than there used to be. So at the top of the show, we played a clip from a video that Dr. All actually made after falling through the ice down 70 feet into a crevasse, which imagine being pinned between two walls of ice that are just far enough apart to fit a human body. And looking up, uh, you can see a sliver of sunlight nearly 100 feet above you. One of your arms is completely out of commission, broken in multiple places. You're bleeding internally from broken ribs, uh, and you still have to plan and execute your escape. So Dr. All worked his way over to the thinner side of the crevasse where the mountain walls came together. He figured he could wedge himself in the space and use his one good arm to try and pull himself out of the 70-foot chasm. I was conscious the whole time. I mean, when I landed... um yeah, I was just stunned to be alive, you know, because once you start free falling as a climber, I knew exactly what had happened. I knew I was dead. I knew there was nothing that could be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but because, but then when I felt the pain, um, I knew I was alive. And I felt like everyone feels, if you've ever had the breath knocked out of you mm-hmm. and um, you're just trying to go, uh, trying to find a way to pull that first breath in, that's what I felt when I landed. So you had ribs, ribs were broken or or? ribs were broken. Um, Again, when I fell, I tried to throw my arm out and catch myself. And um, you can't stop yourself free falling with one arm. It just ripped the arm out of socket, Mm. tore all the tendons and ligaments and everything in the shoulder. Um, So that was all torn up. Like I said, I had six of my backbones were broken and then six ribs were broken as well. So um, and then I was bleeding internally. And I had blood all over my face. And um, so, yeah, I was pretty well smashed up. Problem was I couldn't go straight up because it was overhung. Uh-huh. I, it had sort of opened up as I had fallen. So I had to climb upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, I looked to my left and it got even wider. So there was just no way out to the left. But as I looked to the right, the crevasse kind of narrowed and began closing in. And I knew if I kept going right, eventually it would get narrow enough that I could kind of wedge my body between the two sides. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did. I climbed hundreds of feet to the right to, um, you know, over the void sort of. Um, and that was how I was able to kind of narrow the gap. As he was climbing, Dr. All says that say for one moment, he would not let himself think about his family or his students or anything else about his life. He would only focus on the task at hand. But just once, his thoughts traveled to an image of his mother. At one point, um, I was crossing a long, long, um, super tough. I was kind of worn out. It was probably 75 feet across. And I remember looking down at one point, and the walls were all sinuous and undulating down as far as I could see. And it suddenly had this vision of my body sliding along those walls if, if I, like, fell. And, and that, and it just, it seemed so easy. And it was like, you know, that was your escape or whatever. And I absolutely wouldn't accept that. 
Um, but I remember thinking for like a split second, you know, if, if I did that and fell down into that crevasse like that, they would never find my body. And my mom would just be torn to pieces if she just didn't know what happened to her son. So um, that is the only time that it sort of, I saw my family or even thought about it. But then I immediately had to shut it back down and, you know, put this crampon in, make the ax stick here. It just became one of those, you're so focused on making sure everything you do is perfect because if you don't, you're gonna die. So that was critical, that was critical. And you were doing this all with one arm. Exactly, exactly. The other arm, like I said, it was the clavicle, the scapula, the humerus, they were all broken. Um, The shoulder was entirely dislocated. So we mentioned that Dr. All had the presence of mind to document his ordeal on video. Uh, If you go to ripleys.com and check it out, you can see there's a bright blue sky just visible between the cracks way above him. He turns the camera on himself, and you can see there's blood covering his face. His hair is matted with frozen blood, uh, and you can hear him struggle for breath as he tells his story. Over the course of more than seven hours, Dr. All worked his way to the surface, one arm at a time. He would use his axe, then step forward and pull himself inch by painful inch. When he neared the opening at the top, he noted that the snow was softer, which was more dangerous. It was possible that after all that climbing, he could just make a bigger hole and fall all the way back down. And even if he did get out, how would he notify anyone to come rescue him? Turns out he had Facebook to thank for that. Well, it was kind of amazing because I, first of all, I get up to the lip of it and I'm sort of wedged myself out and I'm, you know, my torso or basically my belly and up is out um, and it's all loose. And so I was terrified that I would like kind of go sideways and then just fall right back in again. Fall back down. Sure. yeah. Yeah. And so I kept having to just push myself a little higher, a little higher and then tried to jump and throw my ax as far as I could to get out. <laughs> and um, so I had to kind of overcome that hurdle. And then I got uh, out and I thought, all right, I kind of got to my feet slowly, tried to take a step and just fell, collapsed like a tree falling. <laughs> and that's when I realized just how bad I was because I wasn't even able to walk. Um, and, you know, I've walked, you know, um, thousands of miles over my life, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds by this time. And so the fact I couldn't walk is just, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm right at the edge. And so it took me, I had to crawl, um, you know, what took me five, 10 minutes maybe to walk, took me a couple of hours to crawl uh, to mm-hmm. get back to the tent. But the whole time I knew there was the sat texter so that I could send out some texts. And um, the problem was, is because Nepal's on the opposite side of the earth from the U.S., everyone was asleep. And so what I ended up doing was instead of sending texts out to individual friends or family or whatever, I sent it to Facebook and let Facebook. I was like, somebody will be awake. Gotcha. Responding to this. And thankfully, one of our board members is, was in Hawaii. And so she was awake and saw it and got things started really early. It sounds like being born again, like like the birthing process appearing. He appears headfirst through the crack in the ice. I don't know. <laughs> Can you see it? Like, Oh no, I definitely do. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think so. And, and what's, what's also interesting about this is that, you know, he comes all the way out and then there must be a little bit of a sense of relief you would think, but, well, yeah. but, but here's the thing is that he still has to kind of be rescued 
uh, which ends up happening kind of by helicopter from from where he is. And that's not easy either. That's kind of a tenuous thing, too. So he's not out of the woods yet. Yeah, right. So uh, it turns out the friends were able to organize a helicopter rescue. And by the next day, Dr. All was at a hospital in Kathmandu. He uploaded his videos to YouTube and kind of became an overnight celebrity. Uh, He ended up appearing on daytime talk shows and in magazine articles. And a year later, he was back working in the field. By 2017, he'd written his own book called Icefall Adventures at the Wild Edges of Our Dangerous Changing Planet. Even today, Dr. All still uses his platform to spread awareness about climate change throughout the world and says an event like this definitely makes you think differently about the priorities in your life. All right, that was an amazing story. Uh, now let's travel from the Himalayas to a little place called Paradise. That's Paradise, California, a town of about 30,000 people located 90 minutes north of Sacramento, nestled between two canyons in the hillsides of the northern part of the state. There, Nicole Jolly served as a registered nurse at the local hospital. November 8th, 2018 began just like any other day. Early in the morning, she made the 10-minute drive from her house to the hospital, and she was happy. It was the day before her 34th birthday. Yeah, it was it was kind of bizarre, you know, because I it started on the canyon side that I drive. So I live I actually live in Megalia, which is right above Paradise. It's a 10, 10 minute drive north of Paradise. So we're kind of one town, but we're considered a, a separate town. So I live in Megalia and I drive I drove from my house down to Paradise and to the hospital. And I'm following the canyon the whole way. And I couldn't see any fire. There wasn't any fire. It was about 6.30 in the morning, so it hadn't quite started yet. Were were you headed to work? Yeah, I was heading to work, uh, to the surgical department. So I got to work about 6.30. And about 6.45, we were notified that there was a fire that started over in the Concow area, which was across the canyon. And we know that when there's a fire over there that our hospital is most at risk because of the canyon right there. We're literally, our hospital's right on a canyon. So if you look at our patients' rooms, you can see beautiful canyons. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, it was beautiful. So when when I went and met my patients that morning, it was about seven, seven o'clock in the morning, I started noticing a smell of smoke already in the hospital. And I thought, wow, I can't believe I'm smelling smoke right now. This is just crazy. And I thought maybe I should pull the fire alarm. And so I went down to the nurse's station and I see this orange glow just just glowing from the patient's rooms. And I'm like, whoa, this is so crazy. And I look out the window and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can see flames. The fire was literally in our backyard, and it only took 45 minutes for the fire to go from a whole town all the way across from the canyon, through the canyon up to our back door. And so by that time, we were starting to evacuate our patients, and we got everybody out in 20 minutes, and we had... I believe it was 68 patients on the floor. It was a scene of total chaos. Outside the hospital windows, it seemed that the world was on fire. Doctors and nurses were running through the halls, then leading patients to their private vehicles to escape the approaching flames. The streets were packed with cars as people tried to escape on the only road out of town. Nicole decided to stay back at the hospital to make sure everyone got out. By the time the hospital was clear, she and a co-worker realized they were stuck. The parking lot was now on fire 
fire and they couldn't see anything through the flames and the smoke. And so we couldn't leave. We had to kind of sit in our cars for about 20 minutes and then the traffic started moving and it was fire on every side of us. There was like nowhere to go. And my husband was calling me and he says, you need to try to make it home. And I said, no, I need to make it down. I need to go and be with my patients. And I sent them all down to the local hospital in Chico. And I said, I, I need to go be with my patients. And my husband was like, I have the I have the kids come home and help me, you know, evacuate. And I, I told him, I said, I can't. I said, first of all, um, I had, um, there was nowhere for me to evacuate. Uh, I was trying to go up Pence Road, which is where I would have been able to get to my home. But it, there's trees down in the road and power lines down, and I couldn't get huh. home from there. And so I had to. I called my husband. Or I told my husband. I said, I just, I can't go this way. I'm gonna have to go down the other road. And I, my friend was right in front of me. And I got out of my car and I told her, I'm like, I don't feel like we should be leaving this area together or without each other. So I said, I'm gonna follow you. Where do you? Which road do you want to take? And she says, Pearson. And Pearson cuts through the center of town. And we didn't know at the time that all of Paradise was on fire. The two women were driving right into the center of the blaze. But the town and its citizens had known fires like this before. Just 10 years prior, Paradise had been ravaged by a wildfire that destroyed nearly 30 structures and evacuated half the town. Still, firefighters were able to get that blaze under control. Paradise had never seen a fire like the one that burned in 2018. We were heading literally into the center of the fire. Um, and so when we turned on Pearson Road and made it made our way around Pearson Road, there's kind of a, a tight corner that goes down into like this little ravine and then back up this hill. Well, my car caught on fire right there and I'm stuck in my car and I'm calling my husband and I said, my car's on fire, what do I do? And he's like, you gotta run. And I'm like, I don't think you understand. There's fire literally all around me. There's fire coming over the top of my car. There's fire, my car's on fire. Like there's nowhere for me to run to. And he's like, you're gonna have to run or you're gonna burn to death in your car. And so I hung up the phone and I got out of my car and I literally ran through a ball of fire up to my friend's truck that was right in front of me. And I'm banging on her windows because she's just stopped in traffic and her windows are completely black. And she, uh. and she doesn't even have tinted windows. So I knew there was smoke filling up in her car. Uh. And I'm, I'm banging on her windows. Please get out, Karen, get out of the car. And I, I didn't get any response. She didn't open her door. She didn't roll down her window. I went to open up her door and the door handle was made out of plastic and it was completely melted. And I couldn't open up her door. And so I kind of realized she's not answering me. Maybe she's not breathing in there and there's nothing I can do. I didn't have anything that I could break the window open with. And the more I stood there, the more I was um, catching on fire myself. The bottom pant my bottom part of my legs were catching on fire. And so I just decided I have to run. I have to leave. Nicole jumped into the next car and waited there for about 10 minutes until it started filling with smoke. She then thought that maybe she should abandon the car and run to the next town called Chico, 18 miles away. 
thought, maybe I could do it. Maybe I can run down the road and I can get to Chico on foot, you know? And I'm running and I realize I'm running out of oxygen and I'm not gonna make it even up this hill five feet because I just couldn't breathe. The fire was just sucking out all the oxygen out of the air. It was so hot. It was like it was like opening up an oven when you have an oven really hot and the air just like burst you in the face. It felt like that. It felt like I was in an oven and I just couldn't breathe. And so I'm I'm putting my hand out in front of me and I'm closing my eyes cuz my eyes were just burning. And I just stuck my hand out and I thought, well, if I run into something, I'll just jump in it and I won't get out. And I ended up getting up to this hill and just put my hands out in front of me and I could feel the flames on my arms and on my hands and I touched the back of a fire engine that was up at the top of the road and I'm looking at the side of the engine and the, the, the paint is blistered off of it. It's just coming off. There's no paint left on this fire engine. It's all blistered. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, here it is. Okay, I'm going to jump into this thing, you know, that's practically on fire itself. But I knew if I stayed out outside, I was just going to die. So I banged on the side of the engine. Two firefighters jumped out and grabbed me and threw me in the engine. And they were like, oh my gosh, how can you even stand being out there? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know how I made it this far. And... Then I'm, I'm inside the fire engine. I thought, okay, I'm good. I'm going to survive. There's, you know, this thing is built for, for going through fires. You know, that's what fire engines do, you know? But Nicole wasn't safe yet. The firefighters called in air support to come and douse the flames, but they were denied because there was so much smoke, the pilots wouldn't be able to see to fly. And because of all the other vehicles on the road, the fire truck couldn't move. Once again, she was a sitting duck, and the temperatures continued to rise, and the smoke continued to suck the oxygen out of the air. Nobody was responding. Everybody was trapped. There was not one engine that wasn't trapped in the fire. Everybody was stuck. So I'm sitting in this fire engine thinking, great, I'm not going to be able to get out of here. And, you know, and these guys are definitely not going to let me jump out and run. And so anyways, we're sitting in there and it just, it felt like hours we were sitting in this fire engine waiting to just die. And all of a sudden we hear this weird clinking noise. And it was like these metal tracks on the ground. And it was like clink, 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 coming up the road. And it was a dozer. And he was pushing these burned vehicles out of the way so we could turn around. And his name was Joe Kennedy, and he's a dozer operator. And he pushed a bunch of vehicles out of the way for us. And we were able to turn this huge fire engine around in the middle of this little road. And we got back to the hospital because he says the best place to go is to the hospital. I thought, great, that's where I just came from, you know? Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I had to go back to the hospital. At this time, it's probably 10 o'clock in the morning, 10, 1030, something like that. So I ended up getting back to the hospital where I should have stayed the whole time. <sighs> and I turn around and I look and my friend Karen, the one that I was trying to get into her truck, but the windows were all black. She's standing right there. She got into somebody else's vehicle that I didn't even see. Oh, wow. And was able to get back to the hospital. And so 
we, when we were back at the hospital, we were able to kind of um, make a makeshift triage area and treat patients that came in with burns. Um, we had a patient that came in um, and had a stroke during the fire and uh, we had to, um, there was a couple pretty bad cases that came in and we were just able to try to help patients as much as we could. Even though Nicole suffered second degree burns on her legs, she and her coworker stayed at the hospital for another 12 hours into the night, tending to patients as they made their way into the ER. When it was over, the fire had burned for less than eight hours, but it was enough to completely destroy the town of Paradise. Victims later learned that the fires began when Pacific Gas and Electric Company power lines ignited two separate fires, which quickly spread due to strong winds and dry conditions. These fires blazed for 17 days, burning more than 150,000 acres and resulting in the deaths of 85 people. One year later, many of those who were displaced have returned to paradise, including Nicole. Um, we, have, we had two homes. I lost my childhood home that we bought. Um, yes. And in paradise, the one that my family bought in the 60s, I lost that home. Um, and that was... That, that home meant a lot to me because that was the home that my very first home I ever bought it was the home I brought my babies home to the home that I was brought home to when I was a baby my mom grew up in it you know I grew up in it it was it meant everything to me that home um and we lost that home and but my home that we live in now we actually um just bought this home right before the fire and so we uh, this home did not catch on fire. And so we were oh, very good. Yeah, we had quite a bit of smoke damage to our mm. house, but it did not catch on fire. So we were able to move back in. I definitely believe that I had my guardian angels with me for sure. My, And I always think that, you know, my grandparents are, are up there guarding me, you know, and right now I'm unemployed and I'm waiting for the ER to open up. But um, it, it's it was difficult because I, I want to work. I mean, mentally, physically, I really want to work as a nurse. But my kids, I had to stay home with them because they got relocated for schools. Um, after the fire, uh, we didn't even know where we were going to send our kids to school. Mm. So for the first six months, they were trying to get the schools opened up. And so I couldn't work until I figured out where my kids were going to go to school. And so my husband and I drove the motor home on a little road trip for Thanksgiving and last year. And we just decided, you know, let's go look at surrounding states and figure out maybe if we belong somewhere else. And we did. We drove to Idaho. We drove to Washington, to Oregon. We drove all over um, trying to find it was funny because we were trying to find little towns that reminded us of paradise mm. and we did we found a couple that were like I, we could do this we could live here you know we got a hold of a couple realtors and looked at properties but ultimately I just I, it, nothing felt like home nothing felt I was like okay I could live here but I don't know this person living next to me I don't know the schools I don't know the teachers you know, how do I start over? How do you how do you grab your kids and start completely over? Because I knew I knew this town would come back. 
I knew we would all join together and somehow we would band together and we would fight this through. And I wanted to be a part of that. Uh, wow. I mean, I just find uh, Nicole's decisions in that in that moment really inspirational. It's incredible. And, and it's all done in the backdrop. I mean, most of us, you've probably seen videos of, of what happened there. It looks like hell on earth. It yeah. looks like you are trying to make your way through classic depictions of hell. Like, yeah. the, like the sky is on fire. Dante. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. 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 Um, really, yeah. really genuinely frightening stuff. A night, a, a nightmare, and a, and and what she did, returning to the hospital and staying with with second degree burns, it's just incredible. Uh, she's a hero, and Absolutely. she should be celebrated as such, as as well as the other folks and uh, the guy that that ran the bulldozer that you know pushed cars out of the way and allowed them to turn around and mm-hmm. and get to safety. Uh, well, let's uh, let's let's have our, our our last story, story number three. Let's leave paradise and travel to the other side of the country, uh, Jacksonville, Florida where a former meteorologist named Brad Sussman prided himself on taking thunderstorms seriously. We're talking about he taught school children and his viewers on TV. Uh, He told them, when you hear thunder, you want to get indoors. Uh, He even served on the county's lightning safety board uh, because there just happens to be more lightning strikes in Florida than in any other state. Uh, Still, the National Weather Service says there's only one in a million chance that a person will ever get hit by lightning. Uh, So what are the chances then that a meteorologist will get hit by lightning? I can't imagine. Uh, That's even greater, right? Uh, But that's exactly what happened to Brad. Uh, So let's flash back to 1993. Brad was spending his last day in the state of Florida before he took another job in Ohio. It was my last day of living in Florida, and um, I just finished cleaning out my house. Uh, the moving van had just left. We were getting a remove up to Cleveland, Ohio. was about to start a brand new job at uh, the ABC affiliate, WEWS. So here I was. It was the, again, last day of living in Florida. I'm busy vacuuming my house because we're trying to get it in good shape for the realtor to you know, put it on the market. And I don't know if you've ever been to Florida, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners to the podcast are either in Florida or been there, but it's real typical in Florida, especially in the uh, fall when this was, um, you get afternoon thunderstorms, and they pop up about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and they last for about 15 minutes, and instead of a cooling rain like you get in most of the countries, it really just makes it more humid. It's Florida. That's what happens. So it was a typical afternoon. And a thunderstorm was right over my house. Here I was busy vacuuming my house to make it look nice. We were getting all ready to move up to Cleveland, Ohio, last day of living in Florida. And as I'm vacuuming my house, I noticed that my, in back of my house, I had a screen porch. And one of the screen, one of the windows was open and rain from the thunderstorm was getting in. So, you know, it's like, I got to stop that. Don't want mold, don't want a problem. So shut off the vacuum cleaner, walk over, open up the sliding glass window walk down, reach over to grab onto the metal window frame to close it. Now, right at that moment, I happened to look down at my wrist and I noticed all of the hairs were standing straight up. It was then I thought to myself, self, now would be a good time to get out of here. Well, the next thing I know, I'm back in my living room about 18 feet. I'm lying flat on my back. I open my eyes, my son, who was two and a half at the time, is looking down over me and he says, 
Daddy, that was funny. Do it again. Ha ha, Daddy. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Do it again. Do it again. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not only was Brad paralyzed, he couldn't speak. But just then, Brad's neighbor ran into his house screaming about how the house had just been struck by lightning and he'd seen the whole thing. The neighbor didn't immediately realize that Brad, whose hand was touching the metal window frame when the lightning struck, was sprawled out paralyzed on the floor. Slowly, the feeling started to come back to Brad's limbs and he, be- and he could begin to speak again. He still wasn't entirely sure what had happened. Yeah, this is, this is incredible. So my, my next door neighbor's like, we got to get to the doctor. You've been struck by lightning. And I finally shook my head and I just said, how could I be struck by lightning? I'm a meteorologist. <laughs> God is my witness. Those are the words that came out of my mouth. I was well trained on the verses of, you know, uh, virtues of lightning and the fear of, you know, dangers of lightning. But I let my guard down for one minute. I am very, very lucky and thankful why we're having this episode today, why we're talking about it to be alive today because a lot of people who get struck by lightning don't survive. I'm always asked, does lightning come up through the ground or down from the sky? The answer is yes. It meets like a circuit. It meets anywhere from six to 60 feet above the ground because it comes out of the ground and and, and down down from the sky. And there are some very incredible photos if you research lightning photos where they actually have, you can see the, the step leader coming out of the ground, meeting the, the, the leader from the, the cloud leader um, coming down from the sky. And there's a couple of ones where they haven't quite met yet. Uh, they met right above me. <laughs> you know, we, we don't know how high it was, but it was enough that the jolt, the bolt of lightning actually uh, did cause a little burn, uh, a burn a little hole in the roof of my screen porch and, and burned a little part of my back. But again, I was a lucky one. Brad was very lucky. Turns out if he'd reached out with his left hand instead of his right to touch that window, the electricity could have easily shot directly through his heart, killing him instantly. Did you know that? This is news to me. Like the, We've never known that, no. Yeah. Like, do you mean just not to touch something metal while you're, like, during a lightning no, storm? No, no. Because I always kind of had that thought, but yes. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah. Instinctually. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, no, that the that the arm oh, that see. you're making contact with at the, at the time the lightning strikes, the arm that makes that contact makes a difference physiologically right. as to what, what's going to happen. I would have not thought about that, but he actually talked to a specialist later on. Uh, who told him that, you know, I guess lightning, like anything else, like you're driving along a road, it kind of goes on a, on a path. And had he reached out with another hand, it would have crossed uh, across his body uh, around the area of where his heart is and that he would have just been toast. Uh, the other thing about this is that Brad did not go to the hospital immediately after being struck by lightning. And uh, he laughs about that to this day, and we think it's really funny. Uh, He did get checked out by his mother-in-law, who's a nurse, and she's kind of freaked out and said, you need to go to the hospital. So a couple days later, he went, got a blood test. It came back fine, and he got a clean bill of health. So um, Brad still laughs about that to this day. Uh, as you can imagine, he did enjoy a bit of fame for all of this. He became the weatherman who survived the lightning strike. Uh, he used that notoriety to continue to spread the word about what to do uh, in the event of bad weather. Uh, he said he would travel to three or four elementary schools, middle schools a week to give this presentation. Uh, Some of those tips, don't use a landline telephone. That was back in the day, Brent, when people actually had landline telephones. Uh, Don't take a shower or a bath. 
stay away from windows, which uh, he would normally close with that story uh, and share his own experience. And then he would tell people that if they heard thunder, get inside because that's the safest place where you could be. And uh, so they'd always, to a person, they always remember the lightning thing and they remember to go inside when they hear the thunder. So working for a TV station in Cleveland, Ohio, we had the opportunity to interview this one uh, basketball, uh, high school basketball phenom who went right into the NBA uh, by the name of LeBron James. So one night he's coming to our station to do an interview. And I had just finished doing my weather segment. He and his entourage were walking in. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, LeBron, I said, it's good, good for you to be here. I'm Brad Sussman. I'm the meteorologist here. He goes, oh, Mr. Sussman. He said, I remember you. And he turned to all the people in his entourage. And they're like, hey, he said, hey, guys, he's been struck by lightning. And I turned and looked at him because you spoke to my sixth grade class. He goes, I'll never forget that. And so I said, well, that's great. I said, but what do you remember from that talk? He said, when I hear thunder, I go inside. And I, I clapped my hands together. And I said, my job is done here. Like the other survivors, Brad says he's still, and this is maybe the least surprising thing ever, Brad still has a bit of PTSD because of the incident. Even today, all of these years later, he feels a bit on edge whenever there's a lightning storm in the area. But he also says it did change a lot about how he viewed his life. Right, absolutely. But not only that, it was to get the word out for safety. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, here, here I was... Uh, you know, super educated on lightning and everything about it. And it's like, let's, you know, figure out how I can get out there and just tell as many people as I can. And that's, you know, I was, I was promoting the gospel of lightning safety in, in many ways. And I know that I spoke to probably around between 10 or 12,000 school kids uh, in my 10 year career here in Cleveland. And, uh, you know, I, I, they know now, they, they know that little bit of safety. And I'd like to think that I've helped keep some people safe. We would like to thank Dr. John All, Nicole Jolly, and Brad Sussman. We are thankful not only that they're still alive, but that they shared their stories with us. So did you know, Ryan, that you can actually look at medical x-rays from other amazing survivor stories? Visit our website, ripleys.com, and see the official x-rays of people who have survived things like a drill bit through the eye and a coconut-sized kidney stone. Believe it or not. See all that and more at ripleys.com. In this episode, we've learned a lot about survivors, what it takes to make it through seemingly impossible situations, and the limits to how much humans can endure. And while each of the stories is amazing in their own right, there's another tale that, at least in the annals of neuroscience, will always hold the unofficial record of most famous. Because this story proved that contrary to popular belief, you actually can survive when a three and a half foot long, 13 pound iron rod shoots straight through your brain. Behold the story of Phineas Gage. On September 13th, 1848, Gage, a native of New Hampshire, was blasting rock for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad in Vermont. That meant boring a hole into the rock, filling it with blasting powder, and adding a fuse, which you then covered with dirt or clay, and then pound into the space with a tool called a tamping iron. As the story goes, Gage turned to say something to his fellow workers, which put his face in front of the blast hole. The tamping iron then sparked on the rock, causing it to explode. 
Gage's life, and most importantly, his skull, would never be the same. The iron rod shot up into his face point first, entering at the left lower jaw and continuing through his cheek. It passed his left eye, then went into the left side of his brain and exited the top of his head, moving through the frontal lobe. It landed nearly 80 feet away, but amazingly, Gage was still alive. After months of recovery, he eventually was able to return to work though friends and family say his personality was forever changed. Gage went on to live for another 12 years before he died in 1860 at the age of 36, but he gained even more fame because his case was the first to suggest a link between brain trauma and personality change. In the book An Odd Kind of Fame, Stories of Phineas Gage, Malcolm McMillan wrote that two-thirds of introductory psychology books mention Gage and his story. Sometime during his recovery, he donated the rod to the Harvard Medical School, and after his death, his skull was donated there too. So wherever someone is pushing the limits or whenever someone is accomplishing the impossible, we here at Ripley's will celebrate them and tell their stories. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. I edit the show. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation, uh, and uh, apparently Billy Corrigan, who stopped by a few days ago. Did you catch that? The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode or enjoy the show at all, please go hit that fifth star on Apple Podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. And catch us next week for a show that I think uh, you'll all be glad we saved until after Thanksgiving. Among a cast of interesting characters, you will hear our interview with a cattle rancher who woke up one recent morning to find several of his ranch animals dead their vital organs missing, and their bodies completely drained of blood. Who's the culprit? Is it aliens? Cryptids? Actually, the most popular theory is perhaps the most disturbing of all. We delve into the mystery and phenomenon of cattle mutilations. That's next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. And I just said, how could I be struck by lightning? I'm a meteorologist.
Daddy, that was funny. Do it again. 